I'm Jason Mitchell, Head of Responsible Investment Research at Main Group. You're listening to A Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast, and I hope everyone is staying well. This episode on climate security really resonates with me because my dad was in the military. He was a fighter pilot flying F-4 Phantoms during the Cold War. So I grew up on air bases all across Europe, and I can remember marveling at the sheer scale of the military's capacity for readiness, responsiveness, and mobilization. Of course, back then, climate change didn't figure into the conversation like it does now. And truth be told, national security and climate action, even today, are generally thought of as issues at opposite ends of the political spectrum. And that's the paradox. The military doesn't see climate change as a military issue, and climate change people don't really address the security issues posed by climate change. But climate change impacts have the potential to reshape security narratives, exacerbate conflict environments, and destabilize fragile states. Indeed, there's already evidence, as you'll hear, of climate change as a threat multiplier in regions like Afghanistan, Somalia, and Mali. Think competition for natural resources like food and water security that drive forced migration. It's why it's great to have General Tom Middendorp, author of the new book titled Climate General, on the podcast. We discuss what's at stake when we talk about climate security, how the defense sector is evolving to address climate risk, from net zero pathways to disaster relief missions, and why the military's level of readiness, resilience, and redundancy offers compelling lessons for how to tackle climate change. General Tom Middendorp was Chief of Defense for the Netherlands from 2012 to 2017 in a military career that spanned 38 years. He commanded soldiers on all levels, led a large multinational task force in the south of Afghanistan, and was involved in over 20 different military missions as the Director of Operations. As Chief of Defense for the Netherlands, he led the defense organization through an intense period of transition and international cooperation. He joined the Klingendale Institute as a senior research associate and is chairman of the International Military Council on Climate and Security. He's also the Netherlands Special Envoy on European Defense Cooperation and a senior advisor in the areas of security, defense, and strategic leadership. Welcome to the podcast, General Tom Mindorp. It's great to have you here, and thank you for taking the time today. Well, thank you for inviting me, and I'm, I'm looking forward to the discussion. Excellent. So am I. I'd like to start off with the book that you recently published, titled Climate General. It obviously came out in the Netherlands, and we are eagerly awaiting for it in the English version. But can you lift the text off that book to summarize its thesis around climate security? Yeah, I, I wrote that book to um, to show the nexus between climate and security for a broader to a broader public, uh, using many many examples from personal experience and experiences from others. And the first half of the book is about how climate change is already affecting our security environment from different angles. Uh, and the key message there is climate change acts as a risk multiplier. Uh, and that makes climate change also a matter of national security. And the second half of the book is about solutions and about hope and perspective. It shows how the security sector has a role to play as part of a wider whole of government effort. 
it also showed how what kind of roles that can be how climate change uh, sorry how the security sector can support forecasting early warning and can help security proof uh, climate mitigation and adaptation efforts and from your experience uh seeing this in action what is really at stake when we talk about climate security well i think i increasingly became aware that climate change is probably the biggest game changer of this century it not only affects our ecology it also affects our economies and our security and we need to see this in the context of two other game changers and one is the increasing gap between demand and supply. Uh, we have resource scarcity on the one hand, that's only increasing, and we have population growth at the other hand. So demand is going up, supply is going down, which creates geopolitical competition. And climate change kind of widens that gap. Mm. Uh, and the, the third trend uh, for this century is the geopolitical side, where we move from a globalizing world to a fragmenting world, making it harder and harder to come to global solutions. And these three global trends interact with each other, and climate change kind of acts as a risk, risk multiplier, fueling many of the already existing risks, and sometimes even uh, working as a root cause of conflict. And it's good to see that this recognition is now uh, being established and is growing, that the climate change can indeed pose a significant national security threat. Do you mind for a second, can we go back in time? And I'm just wondering when the notion of climate security first entered your vocabulary when, we're, when you were chief of defense for the Netherlands. And can you trace it back how it's emerged to represent, as you the, the phrase you said, a, a, a risk or threat multiplier? Yeah, I think when I go back in time, and at that moment, I, I didn't make that link with climate change, but the first real connection is in Afghanistan, where where I saw how water scarcity created all kinds of frictions in the village. Uh, we had a village where we had been fighting for days to get the Taliban out of that village. And uh, in the end, we succeeded, but the Taliban could return any moment because the frictions in that village remained. And it took us a while to find out that these frictions were all about water scarcity and access to water. They just couldn't agree on who had, who had access to what part of the water. Uh, and once we recognized that problem and negotiated a solution, uh, these tensions disappeared and the Taliban could not return anymore. Uh, so for me, at that moment, it became obvious that we need to look further than just the, um, the threat angle. And we also need to look at what drives the insecurity in this region. And I saw the same thing happening in Somalia, where we were fighting the piracy. Also here, we were fighting poor farmers and fishermen who had been driven away from their homelands and their fishing grounds because of climate change. So also there, we were fighting symptoms instead of addressing the root causes. Uh, and that's where... I think the first connections were, were made, but I made the connection with climate change later in my career when I was chief of defense and looking uh, and was looking at the future of defense. So how should our future force, what should it look like? And here we defined several uh, drivers of change for our future force, and one of them was climate change. 
so it took me a while to really recognize the importance of that nexus. So it seems like there's certainly a linkage between sustainability and climate change and addressing security challenges. But national security and climate action are generally thought of as issues at polar opposite or at opposite ends of the political spectrum. How is this paradigm evolving over the years in your experience? And and to what degree does tension still exist? Well, it certainly still exists because we we come from different worlds. Uh, Climate change in the military has never been seen as a military issue. Uh, And security, the security dimension of climate change has never been recognized by the people dealing with climate change. So we come from very different worlds. Uh, We talk different languages and we still find it hard to to recognize and uh, appreciate the nexus, but it is changing. Uh, And I, I think... When you look at the linkages um, and I look at it from a security side, promoting sustainability can really help address security challenges, as I expressed in the example from Afghanistan I gave. Uh, we can um, Promoting sustainability can help prevent resource scarcity, can help reduce the impacts of climate change, uh, and can bring more economic and social stability in a region thereby reducing the risks of conflicts over uh, shortages of resources. Uh, But sustainability also has another link. Sustainability can also help the military become more effective. Uh, By by using green technologies to become more self-sufficient, military forces can reduce the enormous logistical support they need, the footprint they have in conflict areas, uh, but also can also enhance their operational endurance. So uh, I think there is a lot of win-win here that we should further uh, develop. Yeah, I do wonder how the security community has sort of reacted to climate change in a formal sense. Because when I think of militaries, I think sort of by definition, militaries are built around resilience, readiness, redundancy. And so to what degree is climate security already an embedded capability of sorts, although it might not be called that, that sort of flies underneath the radar under different language, like, uh, again, resilience or an awareness to risk multipliers? Well, the security uh, sector, it it took quite a while to react to climate change. They're quite slow uh, because it was too far away and out of scope and out of their comfort zone. Uh, but over time, uh, it increasingly became uh, recognized. But it was already in 2007 that the uh, UN Security Council passed a resolution acknowledging that climate change has implication on international peace and security. And since then, uh, numerous studies and reports, uh, also from military and intelligence organizations, have highlighted uh, the nexus. Uh, but still, it took a very, very long time to, to really appreciate this and translate that into policies and into what can we do about it. Uh, and there is a big difference between militaries in uh, how they pick that up. Uh, many countries have begun to incorporate climate considerations in their defense strategies, but there are also many countries who have completely ignored uh, the relation. A good example is the US, uh, where the uh, Department of Defense has identified climate change is a significant threat to national security and has developed a climate change adaptation roadmap. And also in a, similarly in the UK, uh, DOD has uh, identified climate change as a major security threat. Uh, 
Uh, so in several countries, this, re this recognition is now underway, uh, but they're all struggling in how to put that into practice and how to walk that talk. Uh, but also NATO. Also NATO has realized uh, the, the, the relevance of climate change for their future and has taken steps to uh, develop strategies and uh, policies on this. But there is, are indeed per definition built about uh, around uh, resilience. Uh, and every military op operational analysis starts with an analysis of the impact of weather and terrain. Historically, we have learned to operate in different climate conditions. Uh, and we learn to value the impact that climate and terrain has on our possibilities, but also that it can bring a lot of restrictions in the way we operate. So while climate security may not always be explicitly referred to as such, many military organizations have already embedded climate-related capabilities in their uh, operations and strategies. In the Netherlands, for instance, the North Sea, is uh, the sea is our oldest friend, but also our oldest enemy. Uh, we have learned to defend our country against its dangers. And we have several civil military arrangements in place to provide military support in case of natural disasters, to help protect our vital infrastructure or to evacuate people from regions that are being threatened by floodings. And also in the Caribbean area, many countries like the UK, France, Netherlands have contingency plans and conduct training exercises to prepare for extreme weather events or other climate-related disasters. So there are many examples that it already exists, uh, but there is still a long way to go. Thank you, General, for that. I I'm kind of curious, what in your experience differentiates or distinguishes one country or state from another in terms of their receptiveness to climate security? Is it is it a cultural issue? Is it a leadership issue? Or as you mentioned, with exposure to the ocean, is it an environmental factor? Yeah, for some countries, it's the, their history that they have felt the impact of climate, that they 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 sooner understand the relevance of it, like, like the example I gave for my own country. Uh, in general, I think you see the Western countries, the more Western member states also within NATO, uh, adopt this relevance easier and more quick than the more Eastern member states who have other uh, priorities on their mind. Uh, they, they really look at, at NATO as a security organization, providing security for them against a the threat from the East. And climate change is a is of a much lower priority to them, uh, in general. Uh, and I have to be cautious uh, <laughs> generalizing too much. Uh, but uh, but I do think see the the tide changing, and I see that more and more countries are picking this up. And the fact that now NATO is embracing this topic and uh, has set a goal that all countries agreed on to move to net zero only shows that we are in a stage of transition. Indeed. I wanted to dig deeper into some of the examples around climate change impacting your own security environment over the course of your military career, particularly in countries like Afghanistan and Somalia. Uh, how do you go about problem solving the, these issues? What were the outcomes? Well, I think if you look at the, the, the problems that climate change poses, these are certainly not military problems but they do have military impacts. They do have security impacts that the military has to deal with. 
uh, addressing those the climate issues um, demands a much wider effort. Uh, it demands efforts of almost all departments in a country. It demands a whole of government approach of which the military is a part. Uh, we can play a uh, supporting role in, in those wider efforts, but it, it, it requires uh, large-scale adaptation programs in especially the fragile regions. And these programs are not run by the military, but these programs do depend upon security. If there is no security, these programs will fail. Uh, so you have to take into account the security dimension of the adaptation programs that you want to run in an area, and that requires the expertise that the military can bring to the table. Uh, the military can also support in the wider uh, forecasting and early warning efforts. If you want to, to understand what's, what we are facing uh, in relation to climate change, we really need to improve our forecasting uh, and uh, the military can help to, to forecast the security implications of that change. Uh, so it's all, always part of a wider effort uh, and we are in a kind of a supporting role in that wider effort. Are there any parallels or lessons from the Russia-Ukraine conflict today from a climate security perspective? I'm thinking of issues like food security, for instance. Yeah, most of these uh, effects we now witness in Ukraine are, are kind of indirect effects of a conflict. And of course, there are some direct effects. If you if a whole country is being, uh, well, partly destroyed, of course, the impact on climate is is quite negative, and all the pollution that comes out of it is is huge. But uh, that's of course of a lower priority than the conflict itself. But the indirect effects are are uh, in interesting, and uh, and let me, let me mention a few of them. First of all, this winter period we in, uh, in Ukraine, we, we saw that the cold weather conditions and the terrain didn't allow military units to maneuver. They got, they got tied down in a kind of a trench warfare, and that's a direct impact of, of the climate in that region. Uh, an indirect impact is, of course, the, how it affected food supply in the world uh, and food security, as you mentioned. Uh, Ukraine and Russia together uh, are one of the main providers of, uh, of grain in the world. Uh, and uh, if this <clears throat> supply chain is being disrupted, as we saw happening during the last year, it has impacts on uh, most continents in the world. Uh, and especially in Africa, these fragile countries are very susceptible to these kind of impacts. Only a few percent increase in costs. Uh, is almost unaffordable for uh, many of the people living there and will create more more tensions. Uh, another effect we saw is that, that dependencies, uh, also dependencies on scarce resources, can become a weapon in a conflict. Yeah, and uh, I, I think the Nord Stream pipeline is a good example of that. Uh, we depend upon, uh, we depended upon uh, Russian uh, fossil fuels uh, and Russia used that as an instrument of power, uh, creating a uh, energy crisis in, in Europe. Uh, so as a result, uh, the crisis boosted uh, all over Europe, but it also boosted the energy transition effort in many countries uh, to, to uh, speed up the process of becoming more energy independent. 
So there are many direct and indirect effects, although this whole conflict is, of course, not about climate. It's so interesting. Uh, I was going to say, many in the security community point to this ring of instability around Europe. I've heard you talk about it in, in another uh, form. It's namely less politically stable regions like the Middle East and North Africa. How, in your experience, is climate security playing a role in shaping these regional outcomes? Well, these regions are, are uh, especially vulnerable. And I call the, for instance, the Sahel region, I call the canary in the coal mine. Because what we see happening there is uh, what will also happen in other regions of the world. They are kind of ahead of the rest. Uh, and they are kind of an indicator of what we can expect. And overall, what we see happening as a result of climate change is that we are being faced with longer periods, longer periods of droughts and increased temperatures and shorter periods of increased and very intense rainfall immediately resulting in floodings. Uh, I experienced that myself in, uh, in Afghanistan, where in the springtime you had a few weeks of uh, rainfall and melting water coming from the mountains, creating enormous floodings. And a few weeks later, it was completely dry and there was a water, water shortage. Uh, and this effect, it becomes more extreme, the differences, uh, is uh, an effect that we will witness all over the world. And in these fragile regions, Many of these effects uh, come together uh, and they form kind of a toxic mixture of developments. Uh, these are already fragile regions, uh, which means that they have limited economic power, poor governance institutions, often are confronted with internal tribal, ethnical or religious uh, tensions that are already there. So they are already on the edge of uh, turning into a conflict area. Um, these countries are also facing the largest population increase in the world. Percentage-wise, the uh, largest population increase will be in Africa and the Middle East. Uh, and at the same time, they are being hit hardest by the effects of climate change. Uh, so, And that all comes together in, in these countries, which means that we can only expect these countries to to suffer under the consequences and that there is a big risk of an increased risk of, of uh, these tensions turning into conflicts. Uh, and we already call it, as you said, the ring of instability around Europe. So I can, uh, I think we can only expect more instability coming from that, from that region. And that only makes it more important from a climate security perspective to help address the underlying root causes of those conflicts, to help those countries become more resilient against these changes. And I think that also NATO and the EU can and should play a role in there. From an international relations perspective, we're transitioning from a bipolar Cold War world to a multipolar world. How do you see climate security complicate the move towards multipolarity? What other rings of instability does climate security potentially activate? I'm thinking specifically, you know, the tensions around water security we've seen between India and China, for instance. Yeah, I think it will have many effects. Uh, of course, we come from a globalizing world and in the globalizing world, we were doing business with each other. Uh, but that also created all kinds of dependencies. Uh, and we now see a movement towards a more fragmenting world, which means that it can easily result in more geopolitical competition. 
especially around areas of scarcity. Uh, and as I explained before, we are facing in, an increasing range of uh, scarcities, uh, moving from water to food to all kinds of rare minerals. Uh, and access to those resources uh, will result in more competition, especially in a fragmenting world. Uh, so I'm afraid that this fragmentation will only fuel the um, possibilities of conflicts. And I'm also afraid that those countries who possess those uh, rare minerals or scarce resources, that they could become the future battlegrounds of uh, larger powers competing over access. Uh, so that's kind of a troubling uh, perspective. Uh, and we also see other rings of instability appearing. Uh, and for, for instance, in, the, in South Asia, if you look at the water supply in South Asia, almost all of the rivers from, uh, from Pakistan to Korea uh, come from the Tibetan Plateau. And the Tibetan Plateau, the Himalaya Mountains, are completely Chinese territory. Uh, and China is building hundreds of dams in that region. They already have a lot of dams, but they have plans for an additional 100 uh, dams to build there, which means that in the future, China kind of controls uh, the flow of water to all those countries in South Asia, uh, which, of course, can become an enormous instrument of power in that region. And that's just one effect. Uh, another effect there is that uh, also this ice is uh, melting. The, the, the mass of snow on the Himalaya mountain uh, is also decreasing, which means that uh, water um, supply is at stake, water security is at stake in the more distant future. Uh, and this region is being confronted with a lot of flooding risks uh, as a result of sea level rise and intensifying monsoon rains. Uh, and most of the, the mega cities in the world are located in South Asia, along the coastlines and along the rivers. Uh, so just imagine the impact of, of all, all these uh, factors in that region and how that could destabilize a complete region uh, in the future. So I'm, I'm quite concerned about how that will evolve. And for us, that's also important because these are also the low-wage countries where most of our products are being produced, uh, which means that we can expect enormous uh, disruptions in our supply systems. General, you've made it clear that there's a tremendous amount at stake. In the climate change world, there's often the saying, global problems need global solutions. In your experience, what does that mean from a, uh, from a defense perspective? Does that mean, how, how do we build towards more multilateral solutions around the problems that you're describing? Yeah, that, that will be very hard. Although I, I do hope that um, we can find commonalities and, and I really urge everybody to do that. Uh, if the world is fragment, fragmenting uh, into all kinds of power blocks, uh, and if these power blocks don't talk with each other anymore, they will only increase each other's problems. So uh, I think we should look at the win-win situations. Uh, we should agree to disagree. Uh, there are certain themes that we can argue about and that we uh, can fight about, uh, but there are also themes that are very common. Uh, that we all face, that should unite us. And climate change is one of these uh, worldwide uh, 
uh, effects that uh, affect everybody uh, on what side you are. On uh, it doesn't depend on what side you are. Uh, so this topic could be a topic, or could become a topic where we could be united globally. Uh, so I hope we can make uh, that distinction and build multilateral mechanisms around those topics that we all face, that we can easily agree on, so that we can disagree on other topics without affecting uh, the, the need and the possibilities to address the more common issues. Yeah, well said. Uh, I think we do need a lot more commonality. I guess in that perspective, I wanted to, I'd be curious to kind of hear how you have tried to bridge, you know, a, a divide between climate security being received in the military, potentially with some uh, um, skepticism. On the other hand, I've heard you talk about how environmental NGOs have thought that you were, quote, securitizing climate change. Um, and, and obviously sort of uh, politicians who were sort of expressing surprise about a, a general uh, addressing this. How have you managed to kind of reconcile a lot of you know, different perspectives from, from different stakeholders? Well, in the beginning, it was not easy because I was the first active serving general or chief of defense who addressed this publicly, who recognized the nexus and and made that be heard publicly in the Halifax conference in Canada, but also in the planetary security conference in the Netherlands. And that created a lot of fuss, to be honest, especially in my own country. Uh, I could always say hell broke loose. Uh, we had uh, big media headlines uh, about the chief of defense predicting climate wars. We had the politicians being shocked to hear the uh, general talk about the importance of a left-wing topic like climate change. Uh, we had environmental groups accusing me of hijacking and securitizing their topic uh, in an effort to increase the defense budget. Uh, and it was the first time ever I went viral on social media. Uh, so it was a big shock for everybody. Now, what's interesting here is that that shock uh, disappeared within a few weeks because the fact checkers went over it and, yeah, they, they just couldn't find a hole in it. Uh, and... What's also interesting is that it hardly gave any discussion within the military because the, um, the, the soldiers, uh, they, they recognized the examples I gave because they also witnessed the impact uh, of, of climate into, in the conflicts that they were involved in. Uh, so the discussion was especially outside defense uh, and it was kind of a first shock, uh, maybe also because it was the election period. Uh, and <laughs> It kind of fueled uh, the uh, the oppositions uh, in our political system. Uh, but what I found out is that by bringing this story from a security angle, uh, other people start listening. Uh, what 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 I think is very helpful if you if you bring this from an economic perspective or from a security perspective or societal perspective perspective, is that you can bridge that gap between the environmental groups and the rest of the community. And I think that's what needs to be done. Uh, we need to depoliticize the topic. This is a topic, this topic is a game changer and whether you're left or right, whatever political party you're in, this will affect your future and the future of your voters. Uh, so let's not make this a political issue, but let's be united in addressing this. 
That's so interesting. Do you think, General, that one way in might be more visibility about the constructive role that militaries are playing in addressing climate change? You know, the, the civilian military cooperation in areas like disaster relief. There have been recent examples of the Mexican Air Force seeding clouds with silver iodide and acetone to spur, to spur rainfall during a drought, the Swiss Army airlifting water to livestock during a heat wave, and more than 10 European countries' militaries responding to the wildfires across Europe uh, a number of years ago. Yeah, I think it's important that the military shows its added value. Uh, we can help understand the security effects of climate change. We can support forecasting, as I said earlier. We can um, help increase conflict sensitivity in adaptation planning and adaptation efforts. We can help build resilience in those fragile regions as part of a wider uh, climate security effort. Uh, we can help reduce ecological footprints. We can act as a platform for green innovation that can also help our operational effectiveness. Uh, and we can support uh, responders to severe weather incidents, uh, as you mentioned. Uh, so there are many, many roles we can play. And by demonstrating that, I think the uh, the gap between the military and other uh, environmental players uh, will uh, will disappear, although I already see the discussion fading away. I've been involved in uh, St. Martin in the Caribbean, where a hurricane wiped almost all of the infrastructure in that island away. Uh, and one half of that island is Dutch, the other half is French. Uh, and we were kind of looking, okay, how can we, what can we do to help? Uh, the, the civil responders are per definition uh, not adequate to deal with such a, a dimension of a disaster. They are also affected by it. Uh, so they need external help. And there is only one institution that can really help, and that's the military. Uh, so it makes it important for, for the military, I think, to further professionalize uh, humanitarian assistance and disaster relief operations that we are now doing in a more or less improvised way. Uh, but if, if we are being confronted with these disasters more frequently, and if they become more intense, then I think this task will only increase in importance. Uh, another example are the floodings in the Netherlands, which we are still confronted with regularly. Uh, and over time, we built, uh, we developed mechanisms for civil military cooperation. So at this moment, we have a, a long list of capabilities, military capabilities that can uh, support civil authorities in addressing uh, disasters like floodings within uh, hours and days. Uh, and these arrangements make it very easy to cooperate. Uh, in all the regions in the Netherlands, we have military advisors connected to the civil authorities to advise them on the role that the military can play once they are confronted with a disaster. Uh, and these kind of mechanisms are very, very helpful to not only understand well, from each other what we can bring to the table, but also to bridge that gap very rapidly. So to me, it's very important that we, also from a military perspective, that we professionalize uh, the help that we can offer, uh, but also that we build regional mechanisms, civil military mechanisms to make that easier. Uh, like we have in the Netherlands, we should also have such a mechanism, for instance, in the Caribbean. Uh, France, Netherlands, UK, US, they were all looking through their own straw to 
to provide help to that disaster area. Uh, if we had that pre-planned and had made kind of a divisions in labor in advance, then I think we would have been much more effective in doing it. Uh, so also there, uh, I think a further professionalization is uh, needed. You had mentioned net zero before. In my mind, the defense sector likely faces probably less pressure to decarbonize relative to global commitments to hit net zero. Do you see that changing? How can the defense sector contribute towards climate mitigation efforts without affecting effectively the readiness? Yeah, there is a tension there. And especially now during the Ukraine crisis, everybody understands that defense serves a higher purpose and that their effectiveness is crucial. Uh, so you don't want the, to force defense into all kinds of mitigation efforts that uh, negatively affects their combat effectiveness. Uh, but that doesn't mean that defense can be excluded. Uh, the defense is the largest polluter in any country. There is no company uh, polluting more than defense. We also are responsible more than, for, for more than 50% of all government emissions in any country. So I think defense also has a responsibility to take. Mm. Uh, and I believe that many parts of the military can make that transition to net zero without operational effects. If you look at all the barracks, all the, the civil equipment that we have, all the peacetime equipment that we have, we can easily make that completely uh, energy neutral or, or carbon neutral uh, without hampering any operational effectiveness. But also here, we see the world around us changing. The whole automotive industry is moving to electrification. Uh, the, the more heavy trucks will follow within five years after that. And the shipping is also following. So there is an enormous transition going on in the civil environment around us. And all these technologies can also be used within the military. It's dual use. Uh, so I think we can can smartly use uh, the, the enormous efforts that are now ongoing in the civil sector to also make a transition in the operational domain. Uh, and we can also use these green technologies to improve our operational effectiveness. If we can become more energy neutral, for instance, in mission areas, we don't have these enormous uh, supply uh, convoys of fuel trucks moving to, through uh, thousands of miles of uh, very uh, dangerous terrains, uh, asking for a lot of protection, a lot of risks involved, uh, a lot of costs involved. Uh, so it uh, can help us to reduce our uh, logistical footprint, thereby reducing costs and reducing risks. Uh, and furthermore, electrification or uh, hydrogen kind of fuels can help us to change the signature of our capabilities. Uh, they become more silent. Uh, they don't have an enormous heat signature. So, and that also has an operational benefit. So I think that the military should be very open-minded when looking at green technologies and looking at mitigation. And they should, re should regard it as an opportunity uh, to, to use this transition also in their advantage. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like there are some pretty pragmatic ways to decarbonize the military. But if you were to look at NATO specifically, NATO's made a commitment to achieve net zero by 2050, which means cutting its emissions by 45% by 2030. What kind of challenges does this pose for NATO, particularly considering its proximity to the Russia-Ukraine conflict? Now, how does how does NATO balance decarbonization with obviously its primary goal of safeguarding members' freedoms? 
Yeah, it's a difficult question, but first of all, I'm very pleased to see NATO recognizing the climate security nexus and taking action on it. So I think that's a very, very good move uh, within NATO. Uh, I do want to downplay the goal a bit because this net zero target of NATO is related to NATO-owned facilities and capabilities, which is only a small part of the whole of NATO. Uh, because the defense organizations are no NATO assets. Defense organizations are national assets. Uh, and this goal is not about uh, what all the nations will do. This, no, this goal is about what NATO will do with its own assets and its own infrastructure. Uh, so it's not as big as it sounds. Uh, but still, um, I think uh, it's a good step forward. And I, I think also that NATO, uh, and they are already doing that, uh, uh, needs to seek cooperation with the private sector in, in looking at what kind of win-win solutions we can find uh, on the area of green innovations. There are many best practices available and we can learn from that. And at the other and the, the other way around, NATO can serve as a kind of an innovation platform for developing these innovations. Uh, for instance, NATO puts a lot of money in research and development of future naval vessels and future military capabilities. If we build in uh, sustainability targets into that research and development, we can be that platform for innovation of technologies that also have a wide civil use. Uh, so it's, to me, it's a, a, a two-way street. But overall, I think it's important for NATO to further build knowledge and understanding uh, and they are doing that by establishing a, a center of excellence within NATO on climate and security. Uh, also by uh, creating all kinds of exchange mechanisms uh, within NATO between member states to exchange best practices, etc. Uh, and they are developing a measuring and reporting system on emissions, which can further help to, to tailor and target uh, future goals on emission reductions. I want to change lanes a little bit. Climate change has the potential to completely reshape geopolitics around the Arctic, from commercial trade routes and resource development to international security concerns, particularly for the northern border of the NATO alliance. How do you see economic interests relative to military interests aligning going forward? Yeah, the Arctic is going through an enormous change. Within 10 years, we don't have an Arctic anymore. It's open area. Uh, possessed by many countries, which also opens up access to those resources. Uh, so what we see, looking at it from a security perspective, is a new arena opening up. And uh, we see China, Russia, the US, uh, several European countries all claiming access to those resources, which, of course, also brings uh, not only an economic potential to the table, but also a security dimension. This can easily result in all kinds of frictions and competition. Uh, so here, economic interests and military interests uh, go hand in hand. Uh, at the same time, opening up this area also opens up northern trading routes. Uh, if you look at the lines of communication to Europe from, uh, for instance, China and uh, South Asia, they all have to go through the Suez Canal. Uh, and with the north opening up, we can open a new supply route that is much shorter, which is operational or economically very beneficial. But to a large part, it is through Russia territory. 
Uh, so also the trade routes that can go through big harbors in Europe, like Rotterdam Harbor in my own country, um, can bring security uh, issues with it if we depend too much on it. Uh, Russia can also use that route as a tool to uh, to um, put influence on the European table. Uh, furthermore, uh, opening these routes also opens them for military convoys and military navies. Uh, and for Russia, it's a completely new opportunity to build large naval bases, uh, bases in the north that can access the, the oceans uh, more easily. At this moment, they largely depend upon the Black Sea uh, and have to go through Turkey to access uh, the, the Mediterranean and through the Mediterranean to access the oceans. Uh, so for Russia, this is a huge opportunity to uh, further develop their naval uh, uh, power. So it sounds like an ice-free Arctic potentially means it's going to get much more crowded militarily and have the potential to be much more prone to confrontations. What does it mean for multilateral efforts? We've got the Arctic Council, which includes Canada, the US, Denmark, Finland, Iceland, Norway, Russia, and Sweden. But this has generally addressed regional climate effects for the last two decades in a uh, in a way uh, uh, that is commercial. It hasn't really touched military security issues. Do you think there could ever be a need for an Arctic version of NATO? Well, that would be a one-sided approach. I really hope that we can evolve the Arctic Council in a way that they can keep the region stable and that we do not have to make this a kind of a NATO issue. Of course, NATO will have to adapt, especially when the whole Russian fleet is, is realigning itself in the north. NATO will have to adapt to that. Uh, so the Arctic region does become of more strategic importance to NATO. Uh, but at the same time, I hope that stability in the region does not depend all on NATO, because uh, that would only fuel the fragmentation that's already there. I really hope that the Arctic Council can, can further build its multilateral institution to also address the, the new emerging uh, potential uh, tensions in that region. My final question is this. There's a high correlation between countries most vulnerable to climate change and those experiencing violence, sadly. Yet developed countries have not really fulfilled their pledge to mobilize the $100 billion of funding per year for climate action to developing countries, regions that are, again, most impacted by climate change. How would you frame the discussion with developed countries' governments to leverage the security risks risk that we just talked about posed by climate change to increase the ambition around climate finance? Yeah, I think it would be important to, to recognize adaptation as a tool for conflict prevention. If these countries can adapt to climate change, that would prevent them from falling apart, from turning into conflict areas. It would prevent migration flows for, from occurring. Yeah? The, the World Bank expects hundreds of millions of people having to move away from their areas if if we don't build that resilience. It would prevent them from becoming uh, free havens for extremist and uh, organized crime organizations. Uh, so adaptation is a tool for conflict prevention and stability. But we do have to do it in a conflict-sensitive way. 
uh, else we we run the risk that through adaptation we only increase uh, the tensions if there is have more money in the region can also create more tensions in the region and can only can also fuel uh, those tensions. Uh, so it has to be done in a smart way, uh, which means including the security dimension and, and making your adaptation plans more security proof. In that regard, I, I, re I cooperate with the Global Center of Adaptation, who uh, are developing a billion dollar plans uh, for all these regions. Uh, and they recognize that. They recognize that there is no adaptation without security, but at the same time, there is no security without adaptation. Uh, and, and this linkage is now being more and more accepted, which makes it easier to come up with, with more robust adaptation plans uh, and that are also aimed at avoiding uh, unnecessary conflicts from occurring. Uh, but we do need to see that adaptation is long been seen as uh, um, a sign of weakness. Uh, some saw adaptation as a signal that we would um, resign, uh, that we would give up mitigation efforts, that mitigation, we would accept mitigation as a failure option, uh, which is not the case. We have to mitigate as much as possible to minimize the effects of climate change. But at the same time, we do need to realize, as the IPCC uh, told us, that we are passing tipping points uh, and that there is some change that we cannot uh, unchange uh, that will happen and that we will be faced with. Uh, so we also need to adapt, uh, and and that's that's being more and more recognized. And I do see the funding uh, improving now for the adaptation side. Mm -hmm. It's a really good way to uh, end the conversation. So it's been fascinating to discuss what's at stake when we talk about climate security, how the defense sector is evolving to address climate risk from net zero commitments to disaster relief missions, and why the military's level of readiness, resilience, and redundancy offers compelling lessons for how to tackle climate change. So I'd really like to thank you for your time and insights. I'm Jason Mitchell, Head of Responsible Investment Research at Mana Group, here today with General Tom Middendorp, Chairman of the International Military Council on Climate and Security. Many thanks for joining us on A Sustainable Future, and I hope you'll join us on our next podcast episode. Thank you so much, General. This was a, uh, this was a great conversation. Oh, you're welcome. Okay, I enjoyed it. I'm Jason Mitchell. Thanks for joining us. Special thanks to our guests and, of course, everyone that helped produce this show. To check out more episodes of this podcast, please visit us at man.com forward slash ri podcast.